In saying that we're going to be taking a look at the papacy at its height, we're talking obviously about the fact that we're looking at the papacy at the point at which it had the most power and the most influence in medieval Europe, um, particularly obviously Western Europe. Uh, so we understand that Roman Catholicism extended from the fringes of the uh, Ottoman Empire uh, west out to the uh, out to Ireland, encompassing most of uh, Europe. However, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy still controlled most of the uh, Middle Eastern areas that were not entirely under the control of Islam. And if you were Christian in uh, the Middle East, uh, you were um, almost certainly Eastern Orthodox. But in any event. Uh, the when we say the papacy at its height, we're talking about the point at which its power was was the greatest. It had the most influence. Uh, it had the the greatest role within medieval society. However, that does not mean that uh, the the papacy was in any sense doing what uh, the church was supposed to be doing. Uh, the popes had elevated themselves to an office we do not find in the uh, in the scriptures. They saw themselves as the heirs to Peter, able to speak ex cathedra. That means from the chair of Peter with apostolic authority and to uh, decide things uh, with a um, uh, an all-sweeping uh, um, uh, power that even the apostles did not say that they had. You'll notice that uh, there was the Jerusalem Council, not the Jerusalem Declarations of Peter. You know, everybody gathered and then Peter lorded it over them. And so, so what we're seeing when we're talking about the papacy at its height is uh, actually the church at one of its lowest points where uh, times were darkest, where uh, there was a terrible confusion of the power of the church. Um, the powers of the church, rightly understood, are ministerial and declarative. In other words, the church is called upon to, to simply tell the world what it is that Jesus uh, came to tell them. It's, it's here to proclaim the gospel, not to assert its power, uh, secular power over people, to take control of actual states and so on. Um, so the, the terrible, terrible misunderstanding of the, uh, the, the role of the church in the world at this point being exercised by the, the medieval uh, papacy. But before we get uh, reading, let's go ahead and get praying. So please join me. God, our Father, I pray now, Lord, that you would be with us today as we read from Houghton's work. I pray, Lord, that it would go well and that uh, people would grow in knowledge of what you have been doing. For we remember that history is the story of redemption simply being uh, spun out through the centuries, and it's all under your control. You've ordained everything that comes to pass. Help us to trust you and to walk by faith and not by sight, therefore. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Chapter 13, The Papacy at Its Height. The aim of Pope Gregory VII, that is Hildebrand, to extend the power of the popes over the secular as well as the ecclesiastical sphere of life was shared by his successors, of whom the most eminent were Alexander III, who, uh, who was pope from 1159 to 1181, and Innocent III, who was pope from 1198 to 1216. Under them, the power of the papacy was at its height. We have already seen how Gregory VII humiliated the Emperor IV, uh, Emperor uh, Emperor Henry, sorry, Emperor the Fourth, <laughs> Emperor Henry the Fourth at Canossa. The next great triumph of this kind for the Pope was achieved at the expense of the Emperor Frederick Frederick Barbarossa, who died during the Third Crusade. Frederick had several tussles with occupants of the th of the papal throne. When he had first visited Rome, he had refused to hold the Pope's stirrup but was compelled to do so, a symbolic act of courtesy, on the threat of the Pope's refusal of the imperial crown. Later, the Pope wished to take supreme control in Rome in matters civil as well as ecclesiastical. 
Frederick refused to agree and said, Since by the appointment of God I both am called and am Roman emperor, in nothing but name shall I appear to be ruler if the control of the city of Rome be wrested from my hands. In 1159, when Pope Hadrian IV died, Frederick proposed to call a general council of the church to appoint his successor, but the plan failed. After this, there were many years of dispute between Frederick and Pope Alexander III. To bring the two together, the Doge, that is, uh, it's the Italian word for Duke, the Doge of Venice, offered to act as min a mediator. A meeting took place in the porch of St. Mark's Cathedral, uh, Venice, and three slabs of red marble point out the spot where Frederick knelt in sudden awe, and the Pope, with tears of joy, raised him and gave the kiss of peace. A later legend, of which there is no historical proof, tells how the pontiff, that is the Pope, set his foot on the neck of the prostrate king with the words, The young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. During uh, the reign of Henry II in England, the struggle between the king and Thomas Becket, Archbishop of Canterbury, also illustrates the power of the church. Now, um, incidentally, if you've never seen it, uh, a wonderful movie from the 1960s, uh, is the movie Beckett, uh, which has two of England's greatest actors uh, at their at their high points. Um, I definitely would, would recommend it. Uh, and I won't go much into it uh, beyond that. It's not entirely uh, accurate historically, but it conveys the uh, the general sense of the struggle between King and um, uh, King and Archbishop. That's the word. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm having a, a brain cramp today. I, I, I'm forgetting everything. All right. Uh, the contest between the two men chiefly concerned the punishment of criminous clerks, that is to say, men in holy orders who were guilty of crimes under the civil law. Beckett contended that it was sufficient punishment for the ordained man to be unfrocked, that is, deprived of his orders, but the king demanded that such a man should not only be unfrocked, but also brought into the civil court after being unfrocked for trial and punishment as a layman. At first, Beckett seemed to give way to the king's view, but he soon changed his mind and refused assent. When Henry, in a fit of temper, said that he wished some one, uh, someone would rid him of this low-born cleric, four knights hastened to Canterbury and killed uh, Beckett in the cathedral. The country regarded him as a martyr, and the king thought it needful to do abject penance for what had happened. Beckett's death strengthened the church and weakened the power of the state. Nearly half a century after Beckett's death, Pope Innocent III won a victory over King John of England and followed the death of Hubert Walter, Archbishop of Canterbury in 1205, an event which caused John to exclaim, Now for the first time I am King of England! John also decided that he himself would make sure that the monks of Canterbury elected as the new Archbishop the man whom he would himself name, John de Grey, Bishop of Norwich. When news of this matter reached the ears of Pope Innocent uh, III, he let John know that the new appointment must not go to de Grey, but Stephen Langton, a cardinal of English birth. John was furious. He refused to let the monks elect Langton and entered into a long contest with the Pope. Innocent III promptly excommunicated John, placed the entire realm of England under an interdict, and told the King of France that he was free to take the English crown to himself. The French king prepared to invade England, but before he could cross the English Channel, John submitted to the Pope's condition. They included the requirement that John must surrender his kingdom to the Pope, who would then allow John to govern it as his vassal for a rent of a thousand marks per annum. 
In the year 1215, the year in which English barons, headed by Stephen Langton, required King John to sign Magna Carta, Innocent III called a general, that is, a Lateran council, at Rome to which all the Christian rulers sent their representatives. 412 bishops and 800 abbots were present, and besides, there were delegates from the patriarchs uh, Alexandria and Antioch. The patriarchs of Constantinople and Jerusalem appeared in person. Innocent, in his opening address to the council, told them that the Lord had given Peter not only the headship of the church on earth, but also dominion over the whole world. And as every knee must bow before Christ, so must all render obedience to Peter and to his papal successors. No prince, he said, has the right to rule unless he serves Peter and so the papacy, with reverence and full submission. At the same time, Innocent III put forward the doctrine of transubstantiation, which lies at the very center of the service called the Mass, and which asserts that by the words of the priest, the bread and the wine and the Lord's Supper, they are sometimes called the elements, cease to be bread and wine, and literally and actually become the body and blood of Christ. Hence, they are to be worshipped. The council accepted the doctrine and thereby legislated idolatry. Incidentally, if you walk into a Catholic church to this day, you will often see a, uh, a red candle burning at the head of the aisle. The red candle indicates that the, uh, the, some blessed bread from the last mass, the sacrament, is in um, the sacristy, a, uh, a, um, a, a silver box usually in most churches containing the pieces of bread from the last uh, Lord's Supper, thus uh, intended to, to they, they really believe, therefore, that the, the body of Christ is resting in the sacristy at the church at that moment so that it's particularly uh, holy. So you go and you bow before bread. Uh, this literally is the, uh, it's obviously gross superstition, not something that the Bible teaches, and yet it's practiced in Roman Catholic churches around the world to this day. This is the outcome of, of bad doctrine, bad practice. Under Innocent III, the papacy was at the height of its power and its supposed glory. The church and the world were at its feet. Kings fell down before it, rendering homage. Most of Europe was subject to its sway, but not all men were caught in its mighty current. Christ had his 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. There was even an Elijah in those days, a real servant of the Lord whose name was Bernard of Clairvaux. We have already mentioned him as a promoter of the Second Crusade. Although he was subject to the popes and erred in many ways, in his heart there was an unquenchable fire of God's grace and the dominating power of conviction compelling him to testify to the truth as far as it was revealed to him by the word of God. Successively, he had been appointed Bishop of Genoa, Milan, and Reims, but he declined these honors, for, said he, the word of God teaches me not to strive after great things. Many of Bernard's followers became men of fame and held high positions. One of them became Pope, and when this happened, Bernard admonished him with the words, Remember that you are a successor of him who said, Silver and gold have I none. Gold and silk and pearls and soldiers you have not received of Christ, but they came to you from Constantine. Never strive after these things. Would to God that before I die I might see the church as it was in olden times when the apostles cast their nets not to catch gold and silver, but the souls of men. Bernard, himself a monk, founded many monasteries, and his advice was sought by men of rank and influence. He wrote Latin hymns, some of which have been translated into English and other languages. Shortly before his death, he said, there are three things on which I base my hopes for eternity, the love of God for his children, the certainty of his promises, and the power by which you will make these promises come true. Such a hope does not rest on quicksand, but on the rock of ages. Martin Luther said of him, if there were ever what has been a pious, God-fearing monk, 
than it was Bernard, whom I esteem much higher than all other monks and priests through the globe. I never heard or read of his equal. The condition of the church in the Middle Ages was pitiful. The masses of the people had a blind faith in the doctrines and traditions of the church and never inquired whether they were in harmony with the scriptures. Few could read. Books were scarce. It was a rare thing for a man to have any real acquaintance with the word of God. Superstition increased alarmingly. The doctrine of indulgences gained general acceptance. Here there's a footnote. Indulgences defined by the Roman uh, church as the remission in whole or in part of the temporal punishment due to sin. It usually had reference to sufferings in purgatory. Now, um, I'm going to do a brief excursus here. Uh, purga uh, sorry, purgatory is a uh, doctrine that uh, is taught by the Roman Catholic Church. It does not exist in Scripture. What is the idea of purgatory? Well, here's the idea of purgatory. Um, we commit sins uh, on earth, obviously. Uh, we are born into this world with the stain of original sin. The Roman Catholics acknowledge this, and then we continue on because we are fallen in our sins. Well, first they have the, back, uh, the sacrament of baptism, which they believe really washes away the stain of original sin. Uh, what that means is, oh, you're welcome, Jim, and hi, Debbie, I'm sorry. What that means is that by the application of water to the head of the infant uh, in the ritual of baptism, the uh, stain of original sin is really washed away, that the sacrament does what uh, it is outwardly designed to symbolize, the washing away of sin. Uh, this doctrine is called ex opere operato. So, by baptizing the infant, we wash away the stains of original sin, and then by their attendance on the sacraments of the church, uh, their actual sins that they commit throughout their life are dealt with. Uh, in fact, even if they've, uh, so they, they sin, they do penance, they confess, uh, they go to the Lord's Supper, and then they sin again, they go through the same process of, of having their, their sins washed away. But we need to understand that um, in Roman Catholicism, you're not justified by faith alone and then gradually sanctified and, and uh, you know, made uh, over again after the image of Jesus Christ, conformed to his image. No, no, no. Actually, what happens is you're gradually, uh, you've had the stain of sin uh, washed away, and you actually have to literally be made perfect by having grace infused into you through the sacraments of the church. Here is the problem. Uh, you are not, most, most Christians are not good enough to enter into heaven directly, according to Roman Catholicism. They have not reached the level, uh, the standard of perfection that the Lord requires. A uh, Protestant would say, no, of course they haven't. The standard of perfection is Christ's perfect righteousness, and we can't have that unless it's imputed to us. But by a system of infusion, they have to have their temporal sins, okay, the, their venal sins, uh, the stain of them washed away, purged by fire. So um, some saints, the Catholics believe, do so many good works they do works of supererogation more than they're actually required to enter into heaven. And when they die, they go directly to heaven. All right, And not only that, the extra merit that they accumulated by their works is put into the, the treasury of merit and thus is able to be dispensed to the saints on earth, like uh, extra gold um, you know, given to uh, the saints here on earth. But the average Christian is not a great saint and is not going to be able to enter directly into heaven. So he has to go to a place called purgatory, where the stain of his sins are purged away by fire through thousands of years. If you want to see a, 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 a picture 
of uh, that idea of purgatory. Read uh, Dante's Purgatorio, uh, the middle book in his uh, Divine Comedy series. Uh, you will find that gradually the, the picture that he draws is of the saints ascending gradually through a series of terrible trials, uh, ascending to the top of the mountain, whereby they will finally be able to enter into heaven when all of the stains of their sins are purged away. But there's a way around this for, uh, <laughs> for the, the Catholic with money. Uh, what you do is you buy an indulgence. Uh, an indulgence says that instead of having to spend 20,000 years in purgatory working off the stain of your sins, you gave money to the church for the building of a basilica or something like that, and thereby your, uh, your time in uh, purgatory is remitted. Now, most indulgences remitted a certain amount of time, say 10,000 years indulgence, 20,000 years indulgence, and so on from uh, your time off in purgatory. But uh, at the Reformation, we're going to see the, Pope, uh, the Pape uh, issues a special papal indulgence, uh, a full, a plenary remission of all the time in, uh, in purgatory. And who wouldn't want that? So everybody was lining up to buy this, this great plenary indulgence uh, that the Pope was using to build the basilica in, or to raise money to build the basilica in Rome. Um, Many Protestants don't realize this, but the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, once it promulgates a doctrine, it cannot take it back. Uh, it cannot admit that it was an error, because then you would be saying that the apostles were capable of error because they consider themselves to be the inheritors of the apostles. So, therefore, the, the doctrine of indulgences is still within the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. Look it up. You can still get indulgences to get time off in, uh, in purgatory. You can buy your way out of purgatory, a place that doesn't exist, uh, that the Roman Catholic Church invented because of bad theology. It's just one of the things that you're going to see, and we see it today is bad theology leads to bad uh, practice and then once you've got one piece of bad theology in uh, you have to bring in other pieces of bad theology uh, a, um, a, uh, an example of the way this works out in church history that I've used frequently is uh, the idea of if I button up my shirt incorrectly okay if I if I say um, all right I'm not gonna button it entirely but if I if I were to put you know this button in this hole all right, um, it, and it's difficult to do, but I can still do it. I put this button in this hole, okay, it's buttoned incorrectly. Now, somebody might say, that looks wrong, it's buttoned incorrectly. Uh, you've got this spare button over here, now what are you gonna do with it? So instead of saying, oh, you're right, and unbuttoning it, uh, and buttoning it up right, which would be to admit you were wrong, and to reverse yourself on doctrines that were wrong, what the Roman Catholic do Church does, it says, okay, so we've got this, uh, thing hanging out, this button hanging out here. So what I'm going to do is going to punch a hole over here. And we'll slot that in, and then I'm going to I'm going to rethread this so that it evens up a little more up here. So we're going to add more bad doctrine instead of simply doing this, simply unbuttoning the shirt, and then putting it in the right way so that it is as God intended it to be. That's what happens when you add bad doctrine to bad doctrine. In any event, going back to um, uh, what was, uh, going back to the book then. The church taught that forgiveness of sins might be obtained by the rendering of service to the church, and in the 13th century, indulgences were even sold for money. The Roman church taught the doctrine of purgatory, purgatory being a place which all Christians entered after death, so that they might be purged of or cleansed from the sin which rendered them unfit for heaven. 
On earth also sin made necessary the performance of penance, but indulgences, whether bought or earned, enabled a man to escape penance, or at least a part of it. Thus were men deluded in regard to salvation. Occasionally feeble attempts were made to introduce reform, but such movements were soon checked. In the 13th century, bishops were required by the Council of Toulouse to employ men whose sole duty was to hunt out heretics and hand them over to specially convened tribunals to be punished. Whoever shielded a heretic was to lose his property. This was the origin of what came to be known as the Inquisition. While the demand for a drastic reformation of the church became stronger as years passed by, every attempt to bring it about failed mainly because it proceeded from a wrong principle. External abuses were to be corrected, but corrupt doctrine was to remain untouched. There was no appeal to the word of God, no turning to the old paths, no repentance from dead works, and no belief in the basic doctrine of justification by faith. Dark was the night, and more than human power was needed to drive away the thick clouds. But as we shall see, in God's time, dawn came. And obviously there, Houghton is indicating to us that the, Rena uh, the Reformation is uh, on the horizon it's coming soon hey katie good to see you and jim you are uh, very welcome good to see you guys all right any questions about what we uh, we just discussed about the middle ages uh the papacy in the middle ages uh, purgatory indulgences any of those things no excellent okay well tomorrow we're going to be doing the next chapter chapter 14 and we're going to be discussing the waldenses uh peter waldo's followers who sought uh, to be reformed in their own lives, if not um, affecting a reformation within the church. We'll see that there were proto-reformers who preceded Martin Luther, although their ability to change the church and to change uh, its teachings was very minimal.